I think if I'd gone to the careers advisor at school when I was 16 and said, I'd like to do a couple of theology degrees, train as a chartered accountant, and end up as a chief executive of the world's leading anti-corruption organization and then work with a group of former presidents, they just said, well, it's very nice, David, that you know you have this vivid imagination. Hello and welcome to the Difference Makers podcast, brought to you by Chartered Accountants Worldwide. I'm your host, Indy Hoti. In this series, we're going to meet with leaders, many of whom are at the very peak of their influence and achievement, and some who are making their mark on the world despite their relative youth. They all share the view that the world can be a better place, and that they can and should do something about it. They're all Chartered Accountants. In this episode, we hear from my good friend, David Nussbaum. As well as being a Chartered Accountant, David has two degrees in Theology, one in Finance and an Honorary Doctorate. David Nussbaum is the CEO of the Elders Foundation, a worldwide association of global leaders. He has worked in a leadership capacity for Oxfam, the Worldwide Fund for Nature and Transparency we hope you're inspired by David's story. I'm David Nussbaum. I'm currently the Chief Executive of The Elders and also the Senior Independent Director on the board of Drax Group PLC. I went to the local grammar school, uh, didn't enjoy it, left at 16 and went to the local comprehensive sixth form college in Stoke-on-Trent, which I loved. And I did maths, chemistry and religious studies and general studies as uh, A-levels. Because I wasn't sure, do I want to get into science? Do I want to do more arts things? I took a gap year before I went to university and spent uh, just over a year cleaning floors and toilets in the local psychiatric hospital, which was uh, quite an experience. And then I, yeah, I went to to university um, and studied theology. And I enjoyed that very much. After that, I then had a choice. Do I want to do a PhD and become an academic or, or not? And I didn't. I thought, well, what can I do? You know, it's too late to do lots of useful things like be an engineer or an architect or a bricklayer or a plumber or something. Um, But anybody can become an accountant, I thought. You don't have to have a particular degree. And I knew a bit about what it entailed, that it wasn't just about the numbers, but it was about engaging with businesses and a wide range of organizations which appealed to me. I was interested, and, and I'm always in, have always been interested in these sort of systemic issues, the sort of strategic questions. But I'm also bothered about how things actually work. Who designed it? Where did that idea come? Why is it like that? Those sort of questions. So I moved to venture capital and spent three years uh, in venture capital. And from there, I moved on into manufacturing industry. 
and got a job with a big group, Readpack. But three months after I joined there, the company was bid for, but I was then able to join one of the bits of what they bought that in fact they didn't want. And in 1992, uh, I became finance director and we floated in 93 on the stock market. But I had long had a sense at some point I want to do something different and something that I will feel is more worthwhile. But to be clear, I think having good quality packaging and companies that are run properly with decent finance systems, this is also worthwhile. You know, it's not as if only the sort of more heroic things that we sometimes think of are. This is an appeal from Oxfam to ask if you can give £2 a month to help some of the world's poorest people. I was happily carrying on as finance director of Field Group and I got a, a call from a friend who said uh, he worked for Oxfam. Oxfam were looking for a new finance director and I think you should apply, he said. Then I joined Oxfam as its finance director in 1997. You know, in a public company as finance director, any major decision you are in on, I mean, you are going to be part of the top table discussion about any major decision. And indeed, that was partly why I liked being a finance director. And when I went to Oxfam, my assumption was that it would be the same. It then became apparent to me that this was a complete shock to Oxfam. They thought the finance director was sort of basically stick in his office and, you know, churn out the occasional financial statement to make sure finances are all right. But they didn't expect the finance director to be involved in anything else. Um, well, <laughs> I just would be. I mean, I would be there at the meetings and, and you know, give my participate in, in the discussions. So I think part of what I brought to Oxfam was integrating finances and numbers into the organization's work and, and, and heart. And, and that applied not only to the technical finance side, but also to numbers. And, and the importance of being rigorous with numbers. Let me just give you a quick example. Um, at one point, I was acting director. The director was traveling. This is the days before mobile phones. So he, you know, he was basically uncontactable. So I was the acting director. And there was a major humanitarian issue in South Sudan. We were shipping in large amounts of food for people who might otherwise be starving. And I remember the, um, the emergencies team were, had come to me and we were discussing the details of the program and, and the, the cost and, and so on. And they said, right, so the way we've done the calculations is two kilograms of grain per person per day. Um, uh, and that needs to be shipped in on trucks uh, from uh, Logichokyo. Uh, uh, and, and we've therefore got, I mean, then we've got our planes to distribute it and so on. We've done, uh, this is how it all works. So I said, hang on, two kilograms per person per day? I said, no, I, I don't think that's right. And they sort of looked at me, well, what do you know? You know, <laughs> you're the finance director, you don't know about this, you're, you do financial numbers. So I said, well, I, you know, I understand this is your area, but after this meeting is over, could you please check that you're very sure that this is the right number? Because the reason was I used to make my own bread when I was a student. And I thought two kilograms, like if, if you make it into flour, two kilograms a day, it's no way that you're, you know, people who are 
even people who start are not going to need two kilograms per person per day. So anyway, they, somebody very sheepishly came back a few hours later to say, oh, we have checked, actually, sorry, it's half a kilogram per person per day. All right, okay, so that's one quarter of the lorries, one quarter of the, you know, etc. And I think the training, uh, the academic training and the sort of on-the-job training that you get to become a chartered accountant, it was the basis for, for that, um, as well as my own sort of approach and, and, and interests. You know, Oxfam was lobbying on the way international tax happened. And again, my engaging with them and, and, and challenging them on the numbers they were coming up with and thinking through, how, how you know, does this really work like that? Um, using financial and numerical skills in uh, other parts of the organization's operations. Corruption efforts have stalled in most countries. That's according to the Corruption Perceptions Index that will be released today by Transparency International. So I joined Transparency International, which is the world's leading anti-corruption NGO. It has national chapters in about 100 countries, each of them independent. And I was running the Secretariat based in Berlin which was overseeing and supporting uh, and leading the work. The power dynamics, of course, were that each of these individual entities was, was their own national body. This was not like being at the head office of a PLC with, in the end, you know, you, you can tell them what to do. In the end, we could not tell them what to do. The power dynamics were very different. But again, the importance of of understanding the numbers and the way things were working, both financially, but also, you know, TI is best known for the Corruption Perceptions Index, which, which shows how corrupt uh, different countries are perceived to be. So thinking through, what, what are these numbers telling us? What is the story? Uh, how can we communicate that? Was a, an important part um, of what I did there, as well as helping the transition from the, the, the founder and executive chairman to me becoming the chief executive, to uh, us getting a new chair. So there was both a sort of a human story uh, as well as a business, finance and numbers story there. After Transparency International, I moved to WWF, the environmental charity, and became chief executive of the UK operation. In respect of David, first and foremost, he is absolutely deeply values driven. Um, you know, he, he's a humanist, humanitarian in all respects, respectful of individuals um, and a listener. My name is Ed Smith, former chairman of WWF UK. We transformed WWF in a way from um, being, you know, one of a crowd to being pretty outstanding in its field. And he contributed not just within the UK context, but, but very globally. And he was highly respected in the international WWF community, uh, including having a very, very low carbon footprint himself by doing things like going by train from London to Geneva rather than flying because he deeply believed in, in, in low carbon footprint. So instead of getting on a plane, he would spend many more hours going by train to Zurich, which in those days, you know, it's still not that easy, but but it certainly wasn't an easy, easy journey. Um, so puts his money where his mouth is. 
Climate change is very real, and I think now the world, or most of the world, has registered that. The challenge is huge, particularly on the energy system, but it then gets us into the food system and all, all, all kinds of very everyday aspects of our lives. We've made an awful lot of progress, particularly in the UK. The UK has done very well in bringing down its carbon emissions. However, the first cut is always the easiest bit to do. So it's going to get increasingly difficult and some of the changes we'll need to make will be increasingly challenging. But I think the good news is that companies, most companies are now well onto this and the reporting that's required, such as the TCFD reporting, uh, helps both to tell you where you're at and, and also to, to force you to think about where you're going. At the same time, we should recognise that, you know, the UK's emissions are maybe 1% of the, the world emissions in terms of what we produce, the emissions we produce, and we've got to get emissions down in places like China and, and India, which are producing huge amounts of, of CO2 and still, you know, looking at new coal-fired power stations, for example. On the other hand, we have to have the humility to recognise, firstly, we got to where we are economically by burning all this stuff. Um, and secondly, now we get them to make it and do the emissions and then we use it. So if you use look at consumption-based emissions, how much does our consumption drive emissions somewhere in the world? It's, it's much higher. Um, so the challenge on climate change, it seems to me, is to think through how can we bring everybody with us as we make this change and also also take account of the consequence of this for some people, which will be very acute. And, and how can we make it uh, have a sense of justice for everybody as these changes happen? We know that you know industrial changes or system changes often have uh, people who, who end up being the victims of those changes. So what are we offering them to make this a, a palatable future? And I think that's another important part of the picture. Mrs. Mary Robinson. Honorable President, distinguished members of the Security Council, Mr. Secretary General, I'm honored to address the Security Council again as Chair of the Elders at this important open debate. The Elders is a small group of about a dozen global, former global leaders, statespeople, mainly former presidents of countries around the world. Um, uh, we've also had or, uh, former UN Secretaries General um, and, and some other prominent uh, people. And the Elders work on peace, justice and human rights. And essentially what they're trying to do is to persuade current leaders to take more account of what ordinary people's experience is and to lead with a, a, a greater sense of, of uh, ethics and purpose for the good of all. This group of elders, they will support courage where there is fear, foster agreement where there is conflict and inspire hope where there is despair. And 
My job is to run and lead the secretariat which supports the work that the elders do and also to suggest to them what that work should be. In the end, it's their decision what they do, but we, 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 we do the work of creating the strategy uh, and then delivering on it. And what the elders can do ranges from, at the one end, you know, writing a letter to somebody or making a phone call or more publicly publishing a, a, an op-ed or an article or a blog or a podcast, um, to the more intensive end, which is going to have a physical meeting face-to-face -face with a current leader. And, you know, we've had, you know, and, and these are substantive meetings, say for an hour, uh, and, and they are private. But, you know, sitting in those meetings with the president of China or with the Pope or uh, President Macron or uh, whatever, you know, the, these are moments when current leaders are talking with people who they would regard as their peers uh, of, of some years ago. And so they will probably listen in a different way. Also, of course, we, we've, we, we don't come bearing any threats. I mean, we can't invade your country or send drones to bomb you or impose economic sanctions. We're not threatening anything. We're just coming with experience and wisdom of this group of people who've, who've experienced what it's like to be in top office to offer their insights, wisdom, uh, 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 encouragement and challenge to, to those currently leading in, in often very challenging circumstances. I think if I had gone to the careers advisor at school when I was 16 and said, I'd like to do this, I'd like to do a couple of theology degrees, train as a chartered accountant and end up as a chief executive of the world's leading anti-corruption organization and then work with a group of former presidents uh, 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 and, you know, have meetings with the UN Security Council. They just said, well, it's very nice, David, that you know, you have this vivid imagination. Now, you know, how, how about becoming a computer programmer? Um, or, or, sorry, I'm nothing against computer programmer. We need computer programmers. But what training as a chartered accountant did was to bring the combination of a rigorous discipline uh, with a systemic understanding. So, when you're looking at a business or an organization uh, as an accountant and indeed as an auditor as i mainly was training initially you've got to look at the whole how does this all fit how does this work how does it connect how does what's happening here have an effect over there how does what's happening outside the organization impact on the organization but you've also got to apply those tools in a rigorous way and and look at the evidence and and evaluate what do we make of this does this evidence bear the weight that we want it to bear um, what counter evidence might there be those skills of of thinking about the big picture thinking about the connections and then applying rigor uh, to the specifics these are skills which are hugely important across a wide range of organizations businesses sectors industries etc kind of training chartered accountants get usually also involves 
important and significant interpersonal relationships, both within the organization, but also you are often having to engage with quite senior people, people considerably more senior than you in the organizations that you're, you're, you're working with uh, or, or looking at whether that's an audit or looking at potential acquisition or disposal or looking at improvement plans for, for an organization, whatever. And so you, you, you learn about how to conduct yourself and how to communicate and how to listen, how to influence, how to ask appropriate questions. And again, those interpersonal skills are critical and fundamental to loads of, of jobs and very interesting and senior jobs around the world. In traditional societies, it was the elders of the village who were trusted to resolve conflicts and provide wise guidance. Today, we live in a global village. One of the themes that the elders have is the importance of hope. There's a lovely story of um, Archbishop Tutu, who was one of the elders. In fact, he was the first chair. He, he was on a panel with someone and um, he, he'd been talking very positively and so on. And then one of the other people turned to him and said, well, yeah, what? why are you such an internal optimist? And he said, oh, no, he said, I'm not an optimist. I'm a prisoner of hope. And I think the elders hold on to that. Thank you for listening to the Difference Makers podcast. The world needs leaders with vision, capability and compassion. Some of those leaders will and do come from Chartered Accountancy. Listen to other podcasts in the series on the Chartered Accountants Worldwide website and wherever you find your podcasts. If you like this podcast, why not take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever platform you listen on. It will really help us get the word out. I think the elders hold on to that.